Hi, everybody. Well, it is now episode number two for Interviews on Tap, but it is the last episode of the year, of 2019, as we move into 2020. It's a new decade, Brett, and Jeff, a whole new reboot of the Roaring Twenties. Wow. I, well, one, before we get to the Roaring Twenties, I have to tell you something. I didn't realize that it was a new decade until we started talking about this. I didn't make that transition, maybe because it is a, uh, an election year, and we all like to probably think about something else besides that, unless you're obsessed, <laughs> um, you know, such as some outlets, CNN, <clears throat> Fox, <clears throat> sorry. Oh, wait, oh, what? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> um, sorry about that. But it definitely, though, the Roaring Twenties, right? You're saying it's a reboot. How did you find out about this reboot thing? Well, actually, my daughter, who's only 15 years old, but she says, Mom, she goes, it's like a reboot of the Roaring Twenties. And so she knows I'm a huge fan of that decade and that era. And I said, well, here's an opportunity where, again, people were prosperous and, and living life to its fullest. And minus the end of the decade, which was a bit of a train wreck, everybody had a great decade. So, and of course, there were other historical things that went in with that with world wars. But again, if we take all of that out of that, People were really, if you look at the time period, there was a lot of fashion and culture and just a lot of fun. And I say, you know what, let's reboot it and bring it back and make it our own Roaring Twenties. Well, I think that if we're going to do that, we have to bring back some of the slang. I think that's really important. I think we should call coffee shops gin mills. I think you guys are the bee's knees. Oh, wow. I don't think I can roar again like I did in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, oh, you mean the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. Okay. <laughs> so, so we can, we, we can uh, definitely say old sport at this point. We're old allowed, sport. right? Old sport. Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's it, it's a good thing. I think there's a couple other ones we need to think about here that we should be bringing back, and, and that is uh, the heebie-jeebies. I think oh, that's, I remember that's, that yeah, one. Yeah, that's a good one. Or Ritzy. Or uh, I'd never heard about this, a struggle buggy. Hmm. It's the backseat of a car. Uh, a parent's what? worst nightmare. <laughs> what about the cat's pajamas? That means you're Ooh. quite stylish. So Yes. Or swell. Swell. You, you look swell today, Jeff. I think you're swell. You're swell. Take for a ride. Everybody use that still. Um, yeah, I mean, some are still around here. Um, except for the term hard-boiled, which is a tough, strong guy. Well, speaking of uh, a few of our favorite things yes. then, and in that realm as it is the holiday season and you know we are all big supporters of anything local supporting local businesses whether you're in the midwest or on the east or west coast wherever you have local shops and businesses we want to make sure that you support local and shop small Um, so on that theme what are some of your favorite either coffee houses or places to kind of go and hang out especially around the holidays I think our, our market in downtown Carmel, our Chris Kringle market, because those shops are really interesting. Um, that's something that is always fun to do. But um, I think also shopping local is, is very important. I mean, we all have small business, um, you know, that's excessively important to spend our time with those vendors rather than the big box stores, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're looking for gifts or ideas that, um, you know, are more sentimental, more special, rather than just going and buying, you know, the, I don't know, the widget from Best Buy. Right. 
Well, and Jeff, do you have any favorite little holes in the wall or places that you like to go and just kind of hang out? And We like to support the farmer's market uh, scene even in the wintertime when it starts to visibly shut down to the most people. So if you look for it, you can usually find the farmer's market activities. And what's really incredible is the amount of um, effort they put into like doing the a little festival every every mm-hmm. season. And so we'll go there and we'll do the hot chocolates and um, you know the little snacks. And they always have the Grinch in the elves, you know, Grinch people. Or I, don't, I can't remember their names. Um, what do they call the fate people in the Grinch? Anyway, um, but we'll do the, the who's we, and the we what's. Like the who's and the what's. Is it the who's and the what's? Like from the Whoville? thingies. No, the things. <laughs> they look like elves. Thing one. From thing Whoville, two. Yeah. Yeah, from Whoville. Yeah, the who. The who's. The who's. Yeah, yeah. It's the who's and the what's. Right? Yeah, so the kids like that, and we we do a lot of our stuff. We try to support those small little things like that. We did, however, venture down to the Newfield Lights. Oh, um, how beautiful! Oh, yeah, yeah. We did that on Sunday, and that was pretty fantastic. And for again, our our listeners from outside the area, that is um, what was formerly known and is still near and dear to my heart, known as the Indianapolis Museum of Art, now mm-hmm. Newfields. And they have, I don't even remember how many acres that are just filled with twinkle lights. And it is absolutely gorgeous. When you fly in, you can actually see them if you're in a night flight. Really? Mm -hmm. The tickets are enough to make you realize it's a ticket. (laughs) 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 It's more than $10. But it was a good hour and a half to two hours worth of walking around activities. There was um, the lights that were choreographed to the show um, into music were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you just, you can't hardly describe it unless you go see it. And really? It's a very immersive experience. So That's cool. Yeah. It's very cool I, I've not I've not been. It's worth the trip. Well, I mean, typically around this time of year, we're pretty busy anyways. This year, we've been a little slower. Yeah, but, but you, gotta, uh, you have to carve that time, and you have to take advantage of all of the wonderful things that go on yeah. in your areas and with family and friends. Um, I know it's, it's kind of hard, I mean, for all of us, mm-hmm. but... Um, I know I even like to take time for just even myself, and there's two particular places that I like to go and just kind of balance or recenter. Um, and of course, they're coffee houses, and anybody who knows me knows that it's either a bar or a coffee house. But um, in Carmel, I like to go to a place, um, it's just a little coffee shop that's in um, what's known as the Village of West Clay called Zing's. It's amazing, um, great service, great strong coffee, and just a great atmosphere to just kind of unplug. And in Zionsville, uh, there's a place called Bites by Confectionaris. Um, I like to go there again. They, they, I walk in and they, they're already pouring it. They're already making it. It's one of those deals. And I absolutely love being able to just go, take a moment, enjoy the, the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the season, and take a look around you and be grateful for everything that you have. You know, I do have to tell you, though, I mean, talking about coffee shops and that, I don't know, that je ne sais quoi that they once had. Fancy. Well, think about it. The, really, in the 90s, the coffee shops were a culture, right? Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, uh, just shabby chic couches, things like that. Like, when I remember when they I They did was, the whole Friends show. Right. Yeah, it was kind of like that, but even before Friends, right? So, like, uh, when I was in college in Boston, um, there was this coffee shop that I would go to in Worcester. It's not Worcester. Like, some people think it's Worcester. Um, <laughs> I would drive up there because there was this amazing coffee shop 
and it was kind of from the 1920s, and it was that architecture, and it was it had that feeling. It wasn't sanitized, and it wasn't corporate America. Very Art Nouveau. Well, and really, I think if you're going to go sit and have a cup of coffee, that's the place you do it, right? So, you know, you have live music, and, you know, you have the poetry reading and all of those things that kind of faded away with the coffee shop as it became sanitized and commercialized. So, you know, that brings me to what's on tap this month. I was going to say, you know who else really enjoys coffee shops? Who's that? And speaking of live music, has performed and began his career in a coffee shop. That's Jason Mraz. That's right. And I have heard, number one, he is a coffee bean farmer. And I, all, I didn't realize that until you did the interview. And uh, then uh, also I knew that he was an avocado farmer. And look, everybody, we have to be very thankful for him <laughs> because we know we will never run out of coffee or more importantly, avocados because of him. Which is really interesting for an artist. I mean, you have like um, Maynard from Tool who has a winery. Right. You've heard of things like that. And then you hear uh, of actors like Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds that has Aviation Gin. Right. Pink now owns a winery. Does Pink? she? Pink? What is it, what is oh, it called? Right. It's under her actual name, not Pink. Oh, okay. Um, but it is uh, getting really great. She's selling out before, she, before it ever hits really? the shelves. She, cool. What's crazy is, what's crazy to me is, <clears throat> you see a lot of artists that you, you, you see them buy things like wineries and distilleries or something. And you think that uh, they must just be doing this to put their name on it. Somebody else is really doing everything behind the scenes. But I watched an interview with Pink, and I know I know Jason's the same way. Um, get very hands on. Like when she's not on tour, she's embedded in you know picking and and tasting and oh, that's very cool. hands on. Isn't isn't Jason? Isn't he still involved in coffee shops also? Absolutely, and he actually talks about how in between tours, because he's currently touring right now, which is why we interviewed him, uh, but in between those tours, he likes to go back to the coffee houses, back to his roots, if you will, because that's where he, quote, tests out his songs. And um, he says if it doesn't make the coffee house crowd or the community, it doesn't make it on tour, and it doesn't make it to the album. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, yes, so he is a huge coffee bean and avocado aficionado. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't mix the two. Just, yeah, probably not. <laughs> but in addition, so since his start in the coffee houses in San Diego, um, and obviously he's a singer-songwriter, he's released, did you know, six acclaimed studio albums. And obviously he's rooted in acoustic guitar, flavored with hints of reggae and funk and other cool styles. But some of his hits include I Won't Give Up, Make It Mine, Lucky, and the top 10 smash, I'm Yours, which landed him four Grammy nominations and two wins. Um, so he's on tour right now, has been for a little while this year, with Raining Jane, the all-female folk rock quartet, and it's the L.A.-based band, has performed with him frequently, and even backed him on the 2014 acoustic album, Yes. I like how you use the word flavored in there, since we're talking about avocados and coffee. Well, you know, I am a writer. Yes, flavored, but don't have avocado-flavored coffee. <laughs> and Jeff, you have a little bit of personal knowledge about Jason Mraz. Yeah, history. Yeah, he's, um, he was one of the artists that used to do a lot of private concerts and stuff uh, with the, my last 
employer, and he has a talent of connecting with people that I think is just pretty boggling. It's very real and sincere, and and it really comes across that way. I actually wasn't much of a fan. I really didn't, you know, I had heard his early curbside profit stuff. And at the time, there was a lot of other artists that were kind of doing that same sound of what that album had sounded like. And so I kind of, I, li- I liked some of the stuff on it, but I never really got into it. And then he actually came and performed uh, one of the private performances, and I just went, whoa, this is like the real deal. This is a, a real, true artist. And so that woke me up to him a little bit more, and I started to actually get into him. In reality, his style of music is not probably the genres of music I typically listen to. So it didn't only connect me to a new artist, but it kind of turned me on to something completely different than what I typically listen to. So Jeff's styles grew three times that day. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. <laughs> yeah. It's a cringe reference awesome. for those that didn't pick that up. But the Love album. Yes. The Love album is my favorite album. Mine too. And there is a unique thing that he does. In his, I, I, I'm a musician and I... And my, I try to write songs, and I try to have some sort of insight in my writings. But this guy has this talent of presenting his point of view. Whenever you, whenever you hear him sing lyrics in these songs, such as Million Miles, or I'm sorry, 93 Million Miles, Frank D. Fixer, he's always singing from this perspective. He, he puts this perspective in his writing of him and the relationship to that thing whatever that thing is. And so it's not just like, you know, me, 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 or relationship, you know, like love. There's a dimension to it that you can identify with as a human being, you know, that like, oh, I, that punches me in the heart. When he sings about his grandfather and Frank DeFixer, like I, all the things he's describing about his grandfather, I instantly recognize it right. and remember, and it, it's, it's an amazing um uh, thing to sit and listen to and, and get that emotional connection. Well, you know what's interesting about him is that he seems very West Coast, right? Right. And the mentality, the avocados, for example. I'm going to keep <laughs> on bringing those up because, it, because well, they're the bee's knees, spare sport. Um, it, that he's from Mechanicsville, Virginia. Right. Born and raised, and you wouldn't think about that. So, you know, looking at some of his history, he, he was in college in Virginia and then headed out to San Diego. Um people don't realize how long he's been around. He came to prominence in the coffee scene. And if you know anything about San Diego, they have some amazing coffee bars there. Right. I have a favorite that is down on this wharf area that's kind of in a very nondescript area there um, that anytime I'm there working, I like to go to. But so that was around 2000 that he came to prominence in that scene. You have to think 19 years. Right. And a lot of people think that that success is overnight because it was what? It took him what, till about 2000, what was it, 2008 or 2009 well, he, with I'm Yours? Yeah, it really so, kind of started in the early 2000s, according to him, as far as the name recognition. Mm-hmm. But um, what's really impressive, and you're going to hear in these clips that we're getting ready to play, he is still, even through all of that success and recognition, he is still very grounded and incredibly, as you mentioned, Jeff, very authentic, just very genuine. 
And he even talks about, and he'll say a really cool quote, so I'm not going to say it for him, but he talks about how fame affected him briefly. Um, and I think it does for everybody. Mm -hmm. You reach a point where you're like, right. oh, cool, they know my name. And then one day you realize, okay, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still me, and I still have work to do and bills to pay, and I put my pants on just like everybody else. But it didn't affect him, if you will. It actually was an opportunity of growth for him spiritually and everything else. So let's, uh, in this first clip, he's actually talking about starting out in the 2000s. Um, I asked him when you were starting out and you were working in the lo local coffee shops in the scene in San Diego, I basically just asked him, did you think your, your career would ever take off? Would it look and feel the way that it does now? And this was his response. I wanted to kind of take a step back, if you don't mind, and we'll take a trip down Amnesia Lane, if you will, and look at sure. kind of the remind people where you've come from and where how it's all come together for you, starting back, you know, let's say the early 2000s, you were playing at coffee shops and kind of work in the San Diego area, and then, you know, one day you kind of sit there and think to yourself, did you ever think you would get to where you are today and that it would look like and feel like it does at this point in your career? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, when I started, um, I mean, even before coffee shops, I, I didn't know where my venue would be. I just knew as a young person, I wanted to be involved in music. I wanted to be involved in entertaining people through music. And so as a kid, that could have been anything, um, being a band or work on a cruise ship or um, being a musical. I was just open. My heart was open. And when I was 18 and discovered troubadours and playing guitar, that, that to me just felt like I could do this anywhere. I don't have to wait for a job. So what artist actually says that, you know, I mean, we have to think about this for the moment. Most artists are going out with giant aspirations of playing the biggest stages. And the humility of this guy to say, listening to Troubadours, or when he'd be on a cruise ship or on a musical. I mean, a cruise ship. Can you imagine Jason Mraz now on a cruise, cruise ship? ship? I mean, unless it was for a major fundraiser. But um, yeah, listen to what he says next. It's pretty, again, it's just very humble. So I started playing open mics and street corners and songwriter nights and college parties. Um, and it just filled me up and, and the high was the same, no matter what venue I was at. I just love giving myself to a song or to, uh, the service of, uh, performing. Sure. And I found a home in coffee shops, probably around 2000, 2001 in San Diego. That's when I started having a regular residency. Uh, and that to me was, that was it. I'd made it. I have a regular gig, I'm making my ends meet, um, if I stayed there my whole life I would have been fine. So he basically is saying if had he had not been discovered, he had made it. At that point, it was all good. So in his mind, his success was being able to play for whatever crowd, whatever venue or where, and just be able to entertain people. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. <laughs> that is. I mean, think about this. I mean, your experience and my experience, how many artists do you know that have said that, that demand the largest space? Or if they can't play that space because they've diminished in fame how they feel? 
Yeah, there's always, there is a Im embedded sense of grandeur that people are striving for, you know, to be larger than life instead of just being a part of life, which it sounds like he was striving for. Well, and then this next bit, he says, you know, I, I said, okay, so you've connected with the local coffee shop community and, you know, you felt like you had made it. Well, were you satisfied with that or did you hunger for bigger venues and brighter lights? And this is where he makes this really impactful quote statement. Um, play this now. Next thing you know, my music ends up on the desk of record executives and they want to work with me. So I figured, you know what, let's give it a shot. What, what, what's the worst that can happen? I'll put a record out, maybe I'll go on tour and I can always come back to the coffee shop. So it's interesting as he's talking about this, right? That, again, he's talking about the coffee shops and he's going, okay, we'll just give it a try with the record executive when so many people are just desiring to get in front of the A&R rep to become famous. And look, I've had the chance to stand on stage in front of 48,000 people while we were filming some videos uh, for Warner Brothers. And it's intense and it's amazing to be in front of that large of a crowd, right? Sure. So that's intoxicating for the artist, it's intoxicating for anybody who's waiting on the creative team or working on the creative team. Um, but for this guy to even have that intoxication just in the smallest venues, but also the way that he's approaching this of, we'll give it a shot, why not? Yeah, and then he follows up with this. I, I was kind of unattached to the outcome and I wasn't going to play into the rock and roll ego mind that I was important. Um, I, I think a few times I may have gotten um, intoxicated by fame, but it doesn't last. It's not really, it's not a sustainable uh, concoction to, to consume. Uh, so I would always find myself back at the coffee shops between tours and between albums. So he's, he's saying, you know, it's, it's unsustainable. And I, I mean, to me, that was very powerful coming from him, someone of his, that level of, of success and to say, hey, you know, it's great. But it kind of takes me back to when Melissa Etheridge told me once, hey, we all are trying to reach the top of our own individual mountains. And when we get there, hey, it's great, feels good, but you can't live there. And it was the single most depressing moment of my life because I realized that she's absolutely correct about that. But it's all in how you take it and all in how seriously you take yourself where you don't. I think there's an element there that is, is pretty cool, too, is in my experience with the artists I've dealt with and as somebody who's strived to be a musician and a performer and had dreams of grandeur, there is... I think that in an artist mentality, there is a sense of you're exploring to try to figure out who you are. So a lot of a lot of entertainers and artists that I've seen grow, they're so desperately seeking that because they're trying to figure out who they are, and they're trying to, and and so when it when it ends, when their career ends, they, that fame starts to wane, then all of a sudden they don't know who they are anymore. And what's really what I'm hearing in his in his message there that's really cool is he already had a very established sense of himself and what he was about. And so when when he was reaching out and exploring this, like he said, he, he kept the expectations at a minimum because he had he was comfortable and happy in his own place. And that's a very Zen 
place to be, you know. Well, it's interesting because when we start thinking about artists and suicidality, for example, a lot of that, and also, and I want to preface this for everybody, the listener, so you have some background of the music industry. Uh, Jeff was an executive uh, within the music industry for a manufacturer. He also has been a touring musician, has shared the stage with some pretty interesting folks, and maybe sometime we'll talk about it. But Jeff's background and insights, pretty interesting. I've had the chance to direct and produce music videos for uh, major labels. Um, so having this insight into this artist is is kind of interesting because we all, and, and with Janelle interviewing these folks, she as we talked about in the other previous episode, she really approaches it differently as a journalist because she's talking to them on their level as a friend and not as a quote-unquote reporter, which I think is giving us this really insightful um, interview. But we talk about suicidality with these folks. At some point, fame does take its toll. I think we have all seen that to some degree. And it, and unfortunately, I think that, that, that probably for anybody who's listening that wants to seek some sort of fame this is a great example of how to approach it because you're never going to be left with disappointment that no matter if you play the greatest largest show or the smallest show you're grounded and you're connected with an audience and he feels great about it what a super guy well you know what else too he talks about in in this next clip it's not just how you feel about yourself but it's having that support group and that is, you know, whether it's friends or family, but it's also your fellow artists. And he's really connected over the years with fellow artist Raining Jane, who he is touring with. And he talks a lot about that support because you're all in it together. You know the drill. You know what it's like life on tour, which is always hell. Whether you love it or hate it, it's, it's just what it is, right? And it's exhausting. But you surround yourself with people that are like-minded, and he talks a lot, and even more beyond this clip, he really talked about how they were all centered and brought out the best energies in each other. And the best of each other as artists, but also as human beings. So here I basically just asked him, what is it about this particular tour that is so special to him and the collaboration with the incredible ladies of Raining Jane? And this was his response. So I've been collaborating with Raining Jane since I met them in 2006, and they were, we co-wrote Beautiful Mess together, and we, we made a whole album together back in 2014, that album was called Yes, and they're some of my best friends, and we we bounce ideas off of each other, we write songs together, we, we spend a lot of time together, and being able to put a show together again for us is... Well, it's because we're committed to making more music together. We want to make another album, and we have a collection of new songs. So we're going to be squeezing those songs into the set list, but not blindly. We're going to make a thing of it and include the audience and ask for the audience's feedback. You know, if you don't like this song, give us a big thumbs down or boo us. (laughs) Uh, We want to be very transparent about our process. Okay. And sharing that with audiences. Um, And... They've been a part of my band now as well since 2014. They were in the Good Vibes tour. They were a right. part of my last album. But it's really special for us to break it down to just the five of us because it's the sound that we make when we sit around in a circle and play music. There's there's no frills. There's no extras. There's no horn section. There's no huge drum set. It's, it's vocally driven. 
they share my enthusiasm for positive articulation, mm-hmm. uh, for leaving the world better than we found it. Um, they are they are champions for peace, love, and unity. That's pretty amazing. Hey, how how often do you hear artists describe each other in in that manner? You know, they're champions for peace, love, and and everything that art is supposed to represent, which is you know. All from a Virginia hippie. Right. <laughs> That's probably what some people are thinking, but I don't think it's. it's I think it's a, it's a state of mind that what we mm. once said and called um, a hippie state of mind, when really what it was about was about equality, and about um, peace and you know harmony amongst everyone, versus relegated delegated groups. Um, it's about the know. artistry for them. You know, yeah. it's it's not about ego. It's about the music, and like you said, no frills. It's about the raw music that they're able to create. Well, um, didn't he also talk about his foundation? Did, so if people are familiar or not familiar with, he has the Jason Mraz Foundation. Um, so I asked him, hey, you know, you do some incredible things with this, would you like to share with people about that? And if there's, you know, more information, you can certainly go to, it's Jason Mraz's uh, fan page at jasonmraz.org, I believe. Um, so he talks about the foundation and specifically what they're doing with it this year. Okay. Well, I started it back in 2011 uh, just trying to do good with all the fame and spotlight I've been given. Uh, and way back then, we were writing checks to all kinds of organizations, from the environment to human rights organizations to assistance and recovery and about three years ago, I decided to refocus the foundation's efforts on arts education and the advancement of equality. Nice. And arts education is the path that I came up through, and I feel that I have all my success because the system has been set up for a kid like me to, to be successful. But I realize there are plenty of communities in this world, in this, yeah, this planet that the system is not set up for them to succeed. So I wanted my foundation to be able to go into underserved communities, help them uh, with get the arts education that would give them a hand up in the world, using arts as a medium to unify, arts as a medium to um, to include, and and to give young people some some dope experiences, really some some uh, some awesome opportunities. Okay. So. It's arts education, but with the emphasis on the advancement of equality. So now we write checks to programs that want to create inclusive arts programs. And create some dope experiences. Right. (laughs) He was saying that he um, redirected it towards that. Right. But there's some interesting facts out there, particularly in 2012 uh, in Myanmar, Myanmar, formerly Burma, if I can say that, he performed in front of 70,000 people to raise awareness about human trafficking. Right. You know, that, I mean, then he spent a week in Antarctica with Al Gore, uh, as well as that same year that, you know, he was also doing work in, um, uh, for the Nature Conservancy. So it, went, it goes really beyond that. I mean, yeah. you know, holistically, when you think about it as a human being, what he's trying to do, and you use his fame and, for lack of a better word, fortune, because that can be fortune either monetarily or... Um, his personal fortune, and really turning that into good. And that is what I believe artists should be doing rather than 
you know, worrying about what kind of car they drive, what clothes they wear, and using um, his influence to better the lives of others. That is really commendable. Well, um, and then his last note, again, um, he announces they have a new song that they're working on. This is, again, with Raining Jane, Looks for the Good. And when I ask him, what do you hope people take away from the shows and the experience after seeing you perform with the ladies from Raining Jane? And he concluded with this sentiment. We have, um, we have a new song called Look for the Good. And it's not released yet. It's something we just wrote. But Look for the Good is kind of the, the message or the mantra that I've carried around with me through my music for years. Uh, we live in trying times, but I, and it requires a positive attitude to endure, to get through it, and to continue to get up in the morning and make change in our lives for, for ourselves, for our family, for our community, for the world. Uh, so I'm hoping that as people trust us with their entertainment and come see us, that they'll, they'll not only get great music, beautiful melodies, beautiful harmonies, uh, humor, comedy in the concert, but they'll leave with that sense of, okay, some, some kind of optimism, some kind of hope that in trying times we can still look for the good and find our way through because life is precious. We need every bit of encouragement and support and, and, um, and um, connectedness that we can get to feel like we matter. So that's what I'm hoping people walk away with, is some version of look for the good. Wow. I don't know about you, but I get chills when I hear him say that. I mean, that it, it, it sounds so simple, but yet uh, we, we seem to make it, generally speaking, we seem to make it so complicated. So I, I guess my wish for everybody listening and you know everybody out there that's kind of thinking about what this time of year means to you, and it can always bring out the entire list of emotions, the entire menu, but try and stop and look around and, and think about what's good and contribute to that. Be part of that. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of what makes us the better part of the human race. I think it's a good point. I think the people around this time of year in general, um, you know, get wrapped up in social media, making our best life or the look of a best life rather than living in the moment. I think that that's what he's saying is to live in the moment. That's what we need. We need to live in the moment. The 1920s was all about living in the moment. Exactly. And sitting behind an app is not necessarily going to drive you to live in the moment. And I love the fact that he is promoting the message of feeling good, feeling good about yourself, equality, absolutely important, but sharing that with others. And it is very hard in this day and age, like you said, it's trying times because it can be very isolating now, very isolating, because people tend to communicate over text, they don't tend to talk as much, they don't tend to get together. And you know what, a local coffee shop is a great place to do that, right? <laughs> get together and talk just like we're all talking and live in the moment together. Jeff, you look pensive over there. <laughs> no, I was just I was just reflecting on the conversation and my like my takeaway from what he was talking about. And what is your takeaway? I pick up two things that I know strike with me in my belief system, and that is that happiness and fulfillment come from within. That sense of wellness mm -hmm. is something that you generate. <clears throat> it's 
it's not provided to you from the outside world. You have to generate that and be, and be grounded in that. And then the second point of the topic is, which Brett was leaning on as well, is, and he says it early in the interview, which is there was a, a thrilling moment that he received from ser giving service to others and giving service to the performance to, to satisfy other people. And that's just, if you take that one point and you expand so many things about life from just that message. So that's very true, that's very awesome. true. Closing thoughts, guys, as we roll out the last podcast of this decade, Onward and Upward for 2020. Last thoughts about that before we close out for the season? Well, playing the devil's avocado. Oh, my God. Uh, it just doesn't stop, guys. <laughs> I can't help myself. I just can't. Uh, I, you know, one thing I want to say, this has been, you know, closing out 2019 with this. This is a really great this today i mean i think this interview was probably one of the most interesting um with any individual and i love the message and i think it's great to leave 2019 looking into 2020 with this new message uh, particularly that uh you know avocado and uh, coffee beans will rule the 2020s <laughs> and that we all should be uh wearing uh you know hats and flapper dresses again and maybe both at the same time if you're into it we're in for some interesting times again we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening and following. Be sure that you follow us on uh, interviews on TAP on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as you can find all of our shenanigans playing out on those social media platforms. That's right. So stay tuned for the next episode podcast coming out in January of 2020. Stop saying that. Can't 20, be 2020. 20. How is that possible? I just don't get it. Uh, look at your phone. We'll look at nope. the calendar together. Nope. I'll walk you through it. Nope. I'm in denial. All right. Thanks All right. for tuning in, guys. Thanks. Take care. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.